Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a 20-year-old phenom whose trip to 7-Eleven for a honey bun and a quart of milk would change the trajectory of his career. I follow his eyes to a Sports Illustrated cover that has my picture on it. I look at the cover, I look at him, he looks at the cover, he looks at me, we look at each other, we both look at the cover, and I just freak out. I walk out of the store. I got no honey bun, I got no milk. I don't know how I'm going to hit or play that day. That's the first time you ever saw it. First time I ever saw it. Welcome to Live at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball. From the sandlots to the big league ballparks, Life at the Ballpark is sponsored by Golden Rule Entertainment. Have you ever wanted to own a part of a baseball team? Well, now you can. GoldenRuleEntertainment.com is the place to get into the game. I have, and so can you. Hi, I'm John Frost, and today my guest is Clint Hurdle. Thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. John, you are welcome. I look forward to doing this with you. It's great talking about your career. 17 years as a manager, 10 years as a major league player, and you've gone through the pandemic, and your life looks very different now. So tell me about what you're doing these days. Different season of life for sure. Yeah. Um, two kids in high school. Maddie just graduated. Maddie is 18. Uh, special needs daughter. And she's knocked down a bunch of stuff that we had no idea she'd be knocking down. So yay for Maddie. Son Christian's 16. Found a sport that he's passionate about. Crew. He's rowing the boat. And, and you're a big help to him too, aren't you? In coaching, all uh, that. Yeah, yeah, you know that's what I. You know, we talked about this, but yeah, my son has picked three sports out in his 16 years on Earth. One's karate, one was tennis, and one's crew. Know nothing about all three of them. I can't overcoach him, and I can't second guess the coach. So I've been neutered as a parent. I drive him around and provide snacks, yep. so it's perfect. He's also shoveling ice cream, and I, you know, most people say scoop it. No, he shovels it. He's shoveling ice cream at a local ice cream shop here. So it's kind of like the 50s for him. He's working. He's going, you know, not school right now, but he's got a sport. He's also riding his bike to everything he wants to go to when he doesn't drive the car. Can't drive the car by himself yet. So when he wants to go somewhere, some quiet time, he rides his bike, but he's learning how to drive. He's got a lot going on. I have an older daughter, Ashley's 35 in Plano, Texas. Uh, is going to get married on the 1st of October this year in Pismo Beach, California. Mm. Her fiancé, Ricky's 39. She's 35. Both first-time engagements and both first time they'll get been married. So a lot of exciting stuff going on since I've landed back at home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I have a co-host on oh. this podcast, Dave Burchett, an Emmy Award-winning television director for the Texas Rangers primarily, and obviously Clint spent some time with the Texas Rangers. So, Dave, thank you for helping me out on this podcast. I am delighted to be here. And one of the reasons that we're all together is that Clint and Dave are writing a book together, and it's a book on leadership. You want to share a little bit about what you hope the book will be? Well, it's really in the effort stages, but we're, we're hoping it will be a collaboration of things that we have figured out in leadership, of being a man, of of how our faith interacts with our careers, and basically the how we have learned from mistakes, and we have both made a lot of them. And I think the goal would be to give men a roadmap to how to finish strong. So many men don't finish strong. They get to retirement, and their life seems to be over when it should just really be the best time of their life. 
uh, and men fail at different seasons in their life. And we're hoping that by the mistakes that we've made, that we can help them maybe at least think about, if not avoid those mistakes. Let's talk about some of those life journeys, Clint Hurdle. Let's talk about how did you fall in love with baseball? 58 years ago, my dad, we call him Big Clint. He's about 5'9", about 175. He's been Big Clint all my life. He walked into my room with a baseball glove in one hand and then a baseball mitt with a ball tucked in it under his arm. And he handed me the glove and he said, Hey, son, want to go outside and play catch? 58 years ago, we went outside to play catch. We haven't stopped. My dad and mom are still living. Uh, my dad was just here at the house for a week, just a couple of weeks ago. We actually played a round of golf, just him and I, back-to-back days. We hadn't done that in 15 years. But my dad was my guy that throughout my early childhood never forced anything upon me. But if I asked, hey, dad, can we? Dad, could I? I don't think I got turned down many times. Um, he sometimes worked the third shift, which meant he was away late afternoon, evening. My mom would pick up the slack. He would give her a to-do list of things I needed to work on or be a part of. And one of the things used to drive me crazy back in the day when I was in Little League, my mom would catch me. My dad would have me throw side sessions. I didn't even know what a side session was, but he would have me throw. My mom would catch me, and it was either one of the two. My stuff wasn't that filthy, or my mom had incredible catching skills. <laughs> I want to go with the latter, but I think it was the former. And then to really tweak me, my mom would put down signs. Ooh. I'm like, I don't have that many pitches. You know, I'm like six. <laughs> at a fastball. I don't even think I was spinning the ball then, but she put down three. And I go, Mom, one. Put down one. And then my dad would come home. I'd whine to him about it. And that's, you know, initially when I learned very early that he'd say, son, that's the only, there's the only person there that can catch you. So you better be nice to your mom. But my dad was my guy. And he was my coach for a lot of years until in his mind it came time for him not to be my coach. And then he passed it on. But he has coached me every step of the way for the last 58 years on and off the field. Wow. What a wonderful thing to be able to say about your dad. Yeah, he's, he was my best man twice. Wow. The third time it stuck for 21 years, he wasn't my best man. Ron Gideon, the first base coach of the Colorado Rockies, was my best man. But I told him, not, don't take it personally. I think I had more to do with that than you did. Uh-huh. That's funny. And you were a star athlete very, very early, weren't you? I was – people would – you know, they say, yeah, he was good, you know. And then you hear you were gifted. And then you hear – all I know is I worked at it a lot. I played three sports – I wasn't as gifted in basketball as I was in, in football and baseball, and I was just home a month ago for a high school reunion, but it was a football reunion where they decided to make it Merritt Island High School a football hall of fame, and they retired nine jerseys. Mine wasn't one of them. However, they asked me to come back, and I was supposed to emcee the banquet the next day or the golf tournament, and, but to be there on the field for these nine men that we were going to honor. But there are people to this day men my dad's age that still will yank me by the arm and said you were a better quarterback than you were a baseball player i mean this is 58 years later i've played 10 years i managed i thought thought it's been pretty good but there are guys to this day that will tell me to to my face you know i was a better football player than i ever was a baseball player but baseball Mm -hmm. was my passion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's great so first round pick what was that phone call like for you when you found that out the phone call was yeah, it's the culmination of a dream come true. From that time I went out five and started playing catch, about a year later I started thinking this could be a thing. 
You know, my dad's having me listen to Ray games on the radio. He's talking to me about players. We're following box scores. Big League Baseball, I'm thinking, you know, that would be cool. How about one day to grow up and be a Major League Baseball player? So as we, as we continued to grow and develop and play, I got better. And actually, my sophomore year, they were all the scouts were showing up at Merritt Island High to watch a young catcher, a senior, Waldo Williams. Went on to play for the Florida State Seminoles football, but he was a very gifted athlete. And I'd had a couple back-to-back games that were really good for a sophomore. And my dad was walking out one day, and he overheard a guy saying, hey, I think we showed up to watch the wrong guy. We need to keep our eye on this hurdle kid. My dad shared that with me later that night. That's when it became a thing. And I'm thinking, hey, there may be a shot. I might get drafted. The day of the call, it had been a longtime Royal Scout, Bill Fisher, wonderful baseball man, just a fantastic family friend and scout. He had followed me. The Royals chose me, ninth pick, first round which was incredible. I mean, we had people at the house. It's not like it is today, but I mean, yeah. it was a phone call. And it was right. a five-minute phone call. And it was, I think it was John Scherholz from the Royals at the time. He was the assistant general manager. Welcome aboard. And then Bill came over to the house. And he was a part of the party celebration. And it was all cool. But I want to tell you about a phone call I had before that. that was goes back to a thing we've kind of kicked around. There's two kinds of people in this world, those that are humble and those that are about to be. You know, I start, the scouts start calling. Hey, would you sign? Hey, you know, we know you got a football scholarship to Miami. I had signed a letter of intent to Miami to play football and baseball. And I had football scholarships that I turned down because I wanted to play both sports. Miami was one of only two schools that would let me play both sports if I went. The other was University of Virginia. And there was a third school that I had very much interest in and had interest in me was Harvard. I graduated second in my class. And the cool thing about Harvard was they said, hey, if you struggle with your grades, you don't have to go to practice. All the other colleges I went to say, if you struggle with your grades, you got to go to practice. We'll get you a tutor. You'll, you'll, we'll figure it out. But at Harvard, it was like, no, you know, the grades are the thing. That just intrigued me. Anyway, to get back to the story, I got a phone call from scouts. Hey, would you? Could you? We're thinking maybe. But I got a scout, and I can't remember the man's name now, from the Oakland A's at the time. And I'm here, so-and-so representing Charlie Finley. If we take you in the first round, this is what we're going to offer you, X amount of dollars. We're going to give you 48 hours. Call this number back, yes or no. And he hung up. (laughs) Not that I was getting romance, but I thought I would get romanced a little bit. You know, it was like, you know, can we negotiate? Is there something we can talk about? And, I mean, it was cut and dried. And it wasn't even an offer that made you go, wow, that's a lot of money back in the day. And for me, a 17-year-old kid, you know, $20,000 – that sounded great, but you know, fifty thousand sounded like a lot of money. Hundred thousand been nuts, but the money he threw me, I was like, "Well, geez, I've I put a lot of time and effort, and that's not a whole lot of money." But that was the deal. So you want to talk about reality? And actually, at some point, hoping you didn't get chosen by a team, by a team, that was a real thing too. As we went through the draft, so when the Royals drafted me ninth pick, and it was, I was like, "Woo! <laughs> All right, we got a chance to negotiate here." It's all worked out yeah. 58 years later. So tell me, I'm going to mention a date to, to you and see what your reaction to this is. March 20th, 1978. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the day that the SI cover came out with my, my picture on it. Um, there's a lot that we can unpack, but the one thing I want to share, yeah. since this is your podcast. Okay. <laughs> Back in the day, I would spring training that year – we knew a guy was coming in to shoot the film, and we knew it was about rookies, and I guess it was the second or third year that they put a rookie on the cover, and it was this year's whatever. Well, actually, I want to say 
Harry Chapis was the guy the year before, was the shorter shortstop for the White Sox. It was supposed to uh, didn't work out well for Harry. There was another guy that thought it didn't work out that well for him. So some people are thinking, you know, there, there may be an SI jinx. You, know, you may not want to. I don't get any of that. They're, they're going to film Willie Wilson. They're going to take pictures of me and Willie and a bunch of other guys, see what happens. They do the photos. They say, hey, you know, this article will be out two weeks. I would drive to spring training every day, and on the way in, I'd stop at 7-Eleven. I'd grab a honey bun, and I'd grab a quart of milk. Breakfast of champions. You know, that's what I had. So this day, like no other, March 20th, I grabbed the honey bun, I grabbed the quart of milk. I go to the counter. Guy my age, 20, looks like a young guy at the counter. Hey, good morning. Put my thing up there. He looks at me, and then he looks over the side of the counter. And back in the day, in 1978, they didn't have magazine counters in 7-Elevens. They had three magazines. They're on the counter. It was Time, Newsweek, and Sports Illustrated. Well, I follow his eyes to a Sports Illustrated cover that has my picture on it. I look at the cover. I look at him. He looks at the cover. He looks at me. We look at each other. We both look at the cover, and I just freak out. And I walk out of the store. I got no honey bun. I got no milk. I don't know how I'm going to hit or play that day. That's the first time you ever saw it. First time I ever saw it. Because they never give you a heads up. They don't give anybody a heads up they're going to be on the cover. First time I ever saw it was on the counter in front of a guy my age. And all I remember was him. Hey, is that you? That looks just like you. Hey, come back here. And all I was doing was walking out, getting my car, and getting as far away from there as I could. And then about halfway to the park, I realized, you know, this is going to be a long day. Because they didn't have any rookie sensitivity training. They didn't have any soft onboarding for these type of situations. I'm going in a clubhouse where I'm the youngest guy there, and there's guys 35, 6, 7, 8 years old that have been in the big leagues 10 years and never had their photo on a cover. This might not go real well. Well, it went the way it was meant to go, and some of it wasn't real well, and some of it was fun, and some guys were just, hey, it's okay, and some guys were, you know, I can't believe this. And that pretty much permeated the rest of my year. Some guys were like, hey, a really cool cover, and some guys were like, They'd want to hit you in the ribs. Mm-hmm. So it was it was weird. It was a lot of different things. But, yeah, I remember the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vaguely. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing story. True. That's that what makes it amazing. amazing. story. I'd like to get together with that guy and have him tell the story because I, <laughs> I, I know they would sync up, but I'd really like to hear it out of his lens, seeing this young kid across and looking down and seeing – no, that was the, the guy that was going to buy the honey bun. His picture was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Oh you wouldn't believe it. Well, tell me how that affected your uh, outlook or your mindset or going into beginning your major league career. Was it a burden to you or was it something you enjoyed or was it both? Probably more of a burden than enjoyment. I mean, initially it's kind of cool, but it was, it's not something you walk around with a, cop, a copy in your back pocket and you show everybody and it's not like you kept one in your locker. You don't keep one at home. It's not one in your car. It was almost like, okay, buddy, you, you need to step up now. you got a lot to live up to. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, I took that a couple different ways. Well, there's part of me being, trying to be cool, calm, and collected. The duck on the water, you know, above water, I'm a duck. And <clears throat> below water, I'm, my feet are all over the place, and I'm paddling. And it's nuts. So 
I don't know if it was a big benefit. I think it's turned into a benefit later on in life. Mm. Lessons learned. Okay. Valuable shares. Okay. There's great teaching opportunity for me with younger players who a lot of hype is put on, expectations are put on, that I can share a story that's real and what I thought I managed pretty good and what I thought I managed not well at all mm-hmm. uh, and some of the failures that came with it. So it's been a great learning staple for, for me to share. You had uh, several highlights of your major league career, including – your time with the Rockies. You took them to the World Series. Talk about those days with your first major league managerial job. Another funny story. My life's full of funny stories. Um, The day I was hired by Dan O'Dowd, and I want to say it was May 26, 2002, vaguely remember. I actually, Danny called me that morning. We'd had a couple conversations before that we never connected the dots on, but it was like he was digging for something, and I felt like I don't think I want to go there and answer some of these questions, but he finally called me up in the morning of the 26th and said, hey, I need to talk with you. I'm thinking, okay. Our team wasn't playing well. We were 10 games under 500. I was I was the hitting coach. We weren't hitting. We weren't hitting at all. And just that we weren't playing good baseball. And a lot, I felt a lot of the responsibilities on my shoulders. So Dan calls and wants to talk to me. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. He's going to fire me. Well, we weren't good. And normally, the way it is, a few coaches get picked off and low-hanging fruit. And I was okay with it because I knew we weren't playing well. And Buddy Bell had been a manager, and he'd been there a couple years. And, you know, Buddy was a tremendous baseball man, good baseball man, iconic baseball family. And I gave Dan my address. And I, actually, when Dan hung up, I called my dad and said, Dad, this is crazy. I said, but I just got off the phone with a GM, and I think he's coming over to fire me. He's coming over. I go, he called one come to the house. And he goes, well, that's weird. I go, Dad, it's kind of cool because there's nothing more humiliating than being, I said, I've been released. I've been sent down. I you know, I hadn't been fired. Well, I was fired in the minor leagues, but I didn't have to pack a bag. I said, nothing worse than packing a bag in a clubhouse and have to walk out because you're not good enough. I mean, that's the ultimate. You want to know where you stand? Pack your bag and leave because you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, so that's kind of cool. I'm not going to have to do that. They'll pack the bag, ship it to me. <laughs> um, he's like, well, you know what? And he's, I'm proud of you. Whatever happens, give me a call when we're done. Well, Dan comes in, sits down, and he's walking me through the scenario of things where we're not doing well as a team and some of the challenges he's seeing. Da, da. And then out of nowhere, it's like I'm, I'm going to make a managerial change, and I want you to be uh, the interim manager. Mic drop. What? You know, I'm here, I'm waiting for him, I'm going to make a change, and I'm going to fire you as the hitting coach, and we're going to move on. No, I'm going to make you the manager of the club, if you'd like, but I'd like to do it. And I had to, like, slow down, because I've been around enough good baseball people that my inability to do the job I was hired to do has led to another man's dismissal. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't jumping for joy, because Dan's got to leave here, and he's going to go, let if he hasn't already, I don't know the time, but he's already done or he's going to let a man go. And I learned well enough to you know, honor the exit, but also honor the entrance. And this wasn't going to be, because you hear it twisted so many different ways. You know, oh, we're going to create a new culture. We're going to do the, like the other guy, does anybody show up for work as a president, a general manager, or, or a manager and say, you know what, let me just see what I can screw up today. Hmm. Let me see how horrible I can make this thing be. Or, you know, let's, how, how many different ways? We, nobody does that. Even in the situations where records are 20 games, nobody shows up to do badly, perform poorly. So 
you know, I was going to make sure that when I onboarded, I wasn't about we're going to do this and this and this, and we haven't. No. Honor that man's exit. Humbly walk in and honor your entrance. And uh, it's not done well enough in sports, in all the different sports from time to time. So I try to do it the best of my ability, but I'll tell you what, for six days, um, I couldn't spit. You know, I had to go manage the game. I called my dad up, and he's going nuts. And, you know, I – can you, you can't get – they couldn't make it there today. This is like noon, but they're going to come tomorrow. They're not going to see me manage the first game, but they'll be – it was just my, – my whole life career was flipped. And my folks were there the second day, and then a team went on to win the first six games. And never did I think, oh, that was easy. You know, I hit the button. It was it was real because, you know, I, I went from that coach that – you know, nobody, oh, I don't second-guess the manager. Every coach second-guesses the manager. I mean, not everyone, but you – and you don't do it maliciously. You're not doing it, but you're thinking, oh, I wonder why he did that, or I wouldn't have done that. Say it to yourself. Well, then I got the first guess. First guessing's a lot harder than second guessing. Mm-hmm. Second guessing, you get two to get one right. Mm-hmm. First guessing, you better nail it, pal. Mm-hmm. That's right. Wow. When you look back on your playing career and you're thinking about the other players that you got to play with or play against, what players jump out at you as people who, players who are really, really special? Uh, George Brett, first and foremost, yeah. uh, he actually took me under his wing, and I had my own off-the-field struggles, yeah. well-documented. Yeah, I dealt with alcoholism. I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've got 22 years of sobriety. I've been married 21 years. They're not coincidences. <laughs> it's worked out with you know, two divorces before then. I've got a lot of failure in my life. George Brett was never really a part of the reason for any of my failure. He was fun-loving. He, My gosh, he was great. He took me in. He tried to help. Watch him play, watch him work, work ethic, competitive spirit, all those things. Just a tremendous man to watch play the game. And one of the things I saw evolve that not a lot of people attention to, he wasn't, he was probably an average defender at best when he first came up. He turned into a goal glover because he worked. Mm-hmm. And the greatest hitter that, that I've ever been around and played the game with such a passion and zest and guts and grit. But there were some really cool guys on that Royals team as well. I mean, Frank White, I got to play right field behind Frank, and I got to watch his defensive excellence. It was actually, I think it was the AL championship MVP, mm-hmm. but just a good player and a gifted infielder, which I really kind of took my defensive awareness to another level watching mm-hmm. him play the game. Out of the Royals Academy. Well, yeah, one, one yeah. of the ones out of the Royals yeah. Academy. But two yeah. other guys that really kind of, I would say, I got love from, Amos Otis, who a lot of people misunderstood or Amos Otis was one of the best men to me. Center fielder, helped me out, but just off the field structure, how things are supposed to work. And he didn't always get along with upper management or the manager. And so I try to keep a distance where, you know, guilty by association. But Amos loved on me, took care of me. Hal McCray was another one. Loved on me, mm-hmm. took care of me. Mm-hmm. Taught me the game. Mm-hmm. Right way to play the game, out of the game. Uh, that was as a player in Kansas City and St. Louis, you know, watching Ozzie Smith work at shortstop. Watching Jack the Ripper swing the bat. You know, some of the other guys there, but those two guys jumped out. Playing with the Reds was such a short-lived career, but I actually was in the same dugout with Tom Seaver, John Bench, Dave Concepcion, Danny Dreesen. Come on, priceless. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, managing Walker, Larry Walker, Hall of Famer. Todd Helton, tremendous guy. You know, there were some some wonderful players in Texas. 
I developed a relationship with Josh Hamilton that was off the charts. will never be recreated. It was so much symmetry and so much the timing of it, the Godwinks involved and putting our lives together and mm-hmm. why I was there. And Michael Young is a guy that was all will always be a North Star for me because you talk about leadership, quiet leadership. Wasn't a raw, raw guy. When Michael spoke, people listened. To this day, I stay in touch with Michael. In a significant fashion, impactful fashion, Ian Kinsler made me laugh. I just mm-hmm. love him. Mm-hmm. He was like Dennis the I, I nicknamed Dennis, Dennis the Menace. Mm-hmm. He was, I was Mr. Wilson. He was Dennis the Menace. Mm-hmm. Love that guy. Uh, Vladdy, you know, in a whole different concept, working with Vladdy. Nellie Cruz was a very significant person. My, my daughter fell in love with him. Madison fell in love with Nellie mm-hmm. Cruz. And just, you know, Nellie Cruz. I mean, Maddie would say it when I come home. So there was a bunch of men there. David Murphy. We used to call him Six Tools because he was so much better than any five-tool player that was in the game. Oh, that's great. He could, well, his sixth tool, you know what it was? It was catcher's interference because I think he got six of them that year. People kept asking me if that was a new teaching moment for me, how I brought catcher's interference back into play as a way to get on base. And I think just as importantly in Pittsburgh, Andrew McCutcheon was such a good man to, to sync up with, to link up with. Mark and Tony Watson, some pitchers, Jay Hay, Josh Harrison – you're going to forget people. That's the hard part of doing this, but you're going to forget people. But I've been blessed across coaching, playing, managing to run into good men that I've appreciated, not just their personal, their professional skills, but their personal character and being. And uh, it's been very humbling over time, the guys that stay in touch with you, especially these last 19 months when I've been in a different season of life and I've taken the uniform off on how many guys have still stayed connected. So it wasn't just about the title that I had, but it's about the relationship we built. One last question. And Dave, I'll bring you in on this conversation too. And I, and, and I can have you, Clint, talk about the power of a text. And we think about the text messages that we send. And your story is really interesting in what's happened with that. And Dave actually introduced me to what you're going to be talking about, the email messages and the encouragement you've been giving other people. Yeah, uh, Clint and I connected years ago when he was the, the Rangers hitting coach. We had a mutual introduction, and, and because of our faith, we really, really connected and just kind of hit it off. And, and Clint says, hey, can I uh, add you to my email list? Well, I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> I mean, I didn't realize that for the next 11 years I was going to be bombarded <laughs> with emails. But they're wonderful because Clint takes the time. I don't know how he does it, but he takes the time to wade through all this material he does one that's like encouragement, leadership, and one that's faith-based. And every day, takes Sunday off, he honors the Sabbath, he sends out these emails. So we started a relationship in Texas, uh, kept it going through text and emails, and just kind of shared with each other, and and eventually realized that we're kind of kindred spirits in, in where we want to go, and that's where this book to be announced later. We don't have a title or anything other than a, a concept right now where that came from. And Clint, if you would, share the origins of the text, because I think originally it was maybe a dozen people were on this. And then for a while then, didn't you stop sending it? And there's a story there as well. Yeah, I'm a quitter at heart. (laughs) (laughs) I have an off switch. Um, It started with basically Kelly McGregor, who's been one of my leading mentors throughout my life. Uh, He passed away in, in 2010 when I was with Texas, actually. Fenway Park, but uh, he's been an instrumental man, probably the second most instrumental man besides my father in my life. Mentored me professionally, personally, spiritually. Talked about me sharpening myself, learning to lead others, 
and he encouraged me to start this group where we would have a, a study. It wasn't really a Bible study, but it was just, it was a leadership study. And he asked me to kind of put together a group that I thought that would learn for. So I asked, I probably asked 15 people. And I was surprised I got 12 yeses. And it was a couple employees in the ballpark, a couple front office people, a couple coaches. And it was a cross-pollination of people that were Rockies. And we started at no nine. And we would have it once a time at a homestand. So at that particular point in time, end of May, we probably had five, six, seven get-togethers. At the end of the get-together, I would take the notes, and then I would send a text recap. And at the bottom, Kelly and I had talked about this process of our fathers and how our generationally, Tom Brokaw, the greatest generation at the same time, generationally speaking, our fathers were head down, get the stuff done. The affection part of it was way down on the list. The, the I love you part of it, I, I can't remember. My dad told me he never heard his father, my grandmother, tell him he loved him. He said, I know he did, but it was just it wasn't a part of him. Mm-hmm. My dad, he would tell me he loved me, but it was more of those, hey, I love you. You know, they get a couple of them, a few of them. Well, Kelly said, you know what? This love thing's real. Affirmation's real. <laughs> He said, it's going to freak some people out. But I tell people I love them. He said, you need to tell people that you love them. And you figure out how to do that at the end of your text. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> this is weird. It's getting weird. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to get side-eyed. I'm going to get, you know, I don't want to be, you know, come on. I'm telling people I love them. I don't really know them. He said, it's biblical. Pick up the book of John. Read on, bro. Come on. I did, okay, I get it. So make a difference today. Love, Clint, was my sign-off. Hmm. And we did these meetings, and I put the notes, and I'd text them off, and people would be appreciative and supportive. Hey, you know, I thank you for sending these. And, you know, some would print them up and bring them back in. Hey, I had a question about this. So it, it started to have traction. It was real. It was a good group. I got fired. I got fired the 29th of May. So I understand that after you stopped sending out these texts, there was one lady who wasn't very happy with you. Tell us what she said. She goes, I missed the text, I missed the meetings, I missed the study. You know, you wrote two things at the bottom of all those things, make a difference today. She goes, you're not in love, Clint. I don't think you love me because you haven't reached out to me in seven weeks. Wow. The carnal Clint's going, come on, who is this woman? Doesn't she know I got fired? You know, can't she feel my pain? <laughs> you know, I'm on vacation in the Outer Banks. How can you be bothering me here? And it twisted me. I hang, I hang up and I come back. My wife goes, what happened? You don't look so good. You know, I, I think I went white. I got this call and I told her, she goes, wow, what are you going to do about it? Goes, what do you mean, what am I going to do about it? She goes, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. I'll get back to you. I took a walk around the block and all I could hear was Kelly's voice. Oh, you're only going to do it when you're in the building? You're only going to do it when things are going good? You're only going to do it when it makes sense to you? No, big boy. Start sending the text. So I came up with a different concept. It wasn't a study, but it was a quote or a little lesson or something. And it started with 12. They would add up. At the end of the first year, it was about 500. So this whole process goes until I'm trying to send out like 1,000 texts a day. and I don't have folders. I don't know nothing. And my wife kind of looks at me again, side eye, like, Really? That's how you're going to do it? And she tries to help me compartmentalize. And then it was like, email, what a concept. So then I developed folders where I could put 100 in, and I'd only have to send 20 texts, 20 emails out because I'd have 100. It got silly. And then, fortunately, I got walked through a better way to do it, a more efficient way to do it. And now 
it's like there's 60, 6,800 people on the devotional email, and there's 5,300, no, 6,800 on the encouragement, 5,300, because I get a weekly survey that just came out today. It doesn't cost anything, which, you know, and it's easy to get on. It's man-proof. Mm-hmm. It's easy. It's clinthurdle.com, the shortest website in the world, and you put in your email address, and you either hit devotional, or you hit encouragement, or you hit both, and you're on. But it's amazing what this has done for me because I continue to read. I continue to grow. I continue to learn. I prioritize my time. It keeps me from wasting time. This does have value. I know because of the people that reach back to me. And it actually became a thing last year. An AP writer, a good friend of mine, Janie, in San Francisco, she did a story. And we picked up another 1,500, 2,000 people that was during COVID, they just wanted some encouragement. Yeah. They wanted some faith. And yeah. That's the deal. And it's anytime I feel like stopping or quitting, it's six foot nine, 260 pound Kelly since no, figure it out. Make it efficient, make it good, but keep going. This is, this is what I want you to do. So we're still doing it. That's great stuff. Well, thank you for your time, Dave Burchett. Thank you for your time. Best best wishes on your leadership project. And Clint Hurdle, thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Thanks, John. Appreciate you. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Live at the Ballpark is sponsored by Golden Rule Entertainment. If you've ever wanted to own part of a baseball team, now you can. Visit goldenruleentertainment.com to get in the game. Live at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project manager is Andrew Miller. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of life at the ballpark. <laughs>